Luke 23. We're going to be looking today at the course, the next to last moment in our series we've been calling 40. And in 40, we've been walking through the life of Jesus leading towards next week. Anybody know what next week is? Easter, right? Glad somebody didn't say April Fool's Day. It is. Easter is more important than that, all right? So we've been looking over the last few weeks at this series of messages walking towards Easter. We started with the baptism and temptation of Jesus and followed that with the calling of his disciples. Chris Phillips was here and talked to us about the mission of Jesus. In the last two weeks, we've talked about what he did throughout his ministry. He taught and he performed miraculous works. And so we talked about his teaching from a simple phrase, a simple parable that um, the kingdom of God is like a man who finds a treasure in a field, buries it again, goes and sells everything he has to buy the entire field. And last week we talked about his miraculous work of raising Lazarus from the dead. Today we're going to talk about what all of that had been leading towards. What all of that had been leading up to. The main event, if you will. The last 24 hours of the life of Jesus. Now the crazy thing is, when you think about 24 hours in a lifetime that spanned 33 years, it doesn't seem like 24 hours is a lot of time. All of us can attest to the fact that sometimes a day flies by much more quickly than we ever imagined. 24 hours. And yet the book of John dedicates one third of his chapters to these 24 hours. It's the most significant 24 hours. And the two days that would follow it, the most significant three days in the history of the world. And today we're going to talk about the dividing point of history. What Jesus did that created the dividing point in all of history. I'll show you a picture real quickly. It's kind of an interesting picture. This is a picture of a spot in Glacier National Park in Montana called the Triple Divide Peak. It's kind of an interesting picture there. It's just a mountain range. Most people kind of look at that and are like, that's awesome. That's a mountain. I see some snow, all that. It's cool, right? But what's really interesting is you'll show the next picture is there's a diagram here that that point at the top there, that water divides into three different areas from that one point. And rain that falls there divides. And if it goes over what is the top to us, the north or top part of that, it goes to the Pacific Ocean. If it lands on the left side closest to us, it goes to the Atlantic Ocean. And if it goes to the right side, it goes to the Arctic. And so at this one single point, the water divides that. Hypothetically, three little raindrop friends could be falling from the sky having a conversation on the way down, say, see you later, and end up in three completely different locations at this one specific spot. The passage we're going to go to today, that we're going to work through today, shows us the dividing of life in eternity. People very close, very similar life, 
Similar life situations, similar places of birth, similar family situations are divided into eternity on opposite sides of the line we're going to talk about today. In Luke 23, the stories of two men whose lives are almost identical, but who fall by their own choice on the opposite side of a line and end up in entirely different places. And your life is represented by one or the other. Luke 23 says, Two others, criminals, were also led away to be executed with him. Based on other places this word criminals is used, it is most likely talking about insurrectionists who wanted to overthrow the power of Rome. Most people assume or have pretty good speculation that they were people who would have known Barabbas well. That Barabbas was to be crucified with these two men and Barabbas was one of them. That this is part of Barabbas' clan. And when they came to the place called the Skull, or in Hebrew, Golgotha, which means the skull because evidently the rock face looked like a skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. This is the dividing line of history. And at its pinnacle stands a skull with three crosses. On one of those crosses hangs the Son of God himself. And on the other two, criminals. Insurrectionists. Probably violent criminal men. I want you to think about this for a minute. When a president of our country or any state leader makes an important speech, he often includes... With him on stage, those that are most important to whatever he's announcing. So if he's talking about some military spending or military initiative, he'll often have generals in uniform. If he's talking about a local initiative, he'll have local leaders on the platform. If he's talking about a new policy that's going to impact the country, he'll have people that are affected directly by the new policy on the platform with him. And think about this. During the most defining moment of God's work in human history, he chooses to walk onto the stage with two random, unnamed criminals. Because that's what his greatest moment was about. These three crosses, Jesus and the two criminals, are a microcosm. Of human history. And tell the whole story of the human race. On one we have Jesus dying for the redemption of our sins. For the salvation of his people. On one you have a criminal. Who will reject the message of Jesus. And the only one you have a criminal. Who will repent. And so to set the stage what I want to do first is to talk about Jesus on the cross in this moment. The cross of redemption. Think about how he got there in the first place. After all, the last time we saw him, he was literally raising a man from the dead. Jesus had gotten sideways with both the religious and the secular leaders of his day. The religious leaders of his day were jealous of him because he threatened their authority. The secular leaders thought of him as a nuisance who didn't tremble enough before the almighty power of Rome. The Jewish people were disappointed because he hadn't thrown off the Roman Empire yet. And his own disciples were confused by him. And one even betrayed him to the others and abandoned him. 
So in a sense, his crucifixion can represent the ways that people have collectively failed God in the history of the world. Jealousy, and arrogance, and apathy, and unbelief, and cowardice. But to think that the human actors were solely responsible for Jesus being on the cross would miss the story of Scripture entirely. Because God throughout Scripture tells us that he has his own purpose for this moment. Something he had been planning since the beginning of human history. From the beginning, God had told his people he would send a savior to take their place in the curse of death. He told Adam and Eve that he would send a deliverer who would crush the serpent of death. The serpent would bite the heel of the deliverer, putting the poison of death into him. From that point on in the Bible, he gives picture after picture of this. After he destroys the earth through a global flood, what does he put in the sky? A rainbow. Symbolize that he'd never destroy the world that way again. The word author uses to describe the bow is a war bow. That's not what we call it today, right? Look at that war bow in the sky. But the point is that it is a signal of God that God would absorb the arrow of his judgment into himself rather than firing it down on us. When Abraham was about to sacrifice Isaac, his son, God's commanded him to do. God led him to a lamb caught in the bushes so that he could go free. The entire sacrificial system of the Jewish people was built around this idea of an innocent substitute taking the place of a guilty. Every year, a believing family would bring a lamb, a perfect unblemished lamb, and they would lay it on the altar, place their hand upon it, lay their sins upon it, and sacrifice it. Isaiah the prophet said that one day God would send his servant to be the lamb who suffered for the sins of the world. That he would be wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. That a punishment that brought us peace would put on him and by his stripes we would be healed. When John the Baptist saw Jesus, he said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. On the head of Jesus was going to be laid the sins of the entire human race. Even his last meal with his disciples gave picture of what was to come. It was a Passover feast and at the Passover feast we're going to celebrate in a moment. By taking the bread, taking the cup. Jesus talking about his body broken for them, his blood spilled for them. But even in that description, there is nowhere described what would have been the main course at any Passover meal. The main course at most meals, even in our society, is meat. Unless you're a vegetarian, pescatarian, I don't eat meatitarian, whatever that is, right? The main course is usually meat. And at the Passover meal, the main course was the lamb that had been slaughtered for their sins. The Passover lamb. And yet, in every description that is a pretty detailed, including John, that gives several chapters to that event, never is the lamb mentioned because the lamb is Jesus. Today, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, there is no lamb on the table because the lamb is has already been slain. 
Martin Luther said, All the prophets foresaw that on the cross Jesus became the greatest murderer, adulterer, thief, rebel, and blasphemer that ever was. Our most merciful Father sent His only Son into the world and said to Him, Jesus, you will become Peter the denier. You will become Paul the prosecutor, blasphemer, and cruel oppressor. You will become David the adulterer. You will become Adam the sinner which did eat the apple in paradise. You will become the husband who has neglected or abused his family. The immoral woman who has destroyed not only her own life, but seemingly everyone who comes in contact with her. You will become the drug addict, the teenage girl lying to her parents, the hypocrite living a double life, the proud, the selfish, the apathetic, the jealous. Scripture says that he who knew no sin did what? Became sin for us. On the cross, he became our sin so that from the cross, he could look out on those who had rejected and failed him and pray what he did in verse 34. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. He could extend forgiveness to them because he was being punished for them. I know people try to come up with good analogies for that, and there are some good ones out there. I don't I don't have a lot of them. There is one um, story that I told my kids um, a while back. But I heard from another pastor that I think is, is interesting in trying to describe what's going on here. Story is told, and it was told as if it were true, but who knows if it is or not. It's hard to research something that supposedly happened a thousand to fifteen hundred years ago in a remote land. It's supposed to be somewhere around where the Vikings were. I'm a Scandinavian descent. That's where my family is from. So somewhere in the Scandinavian Area, there's a story told of a king who was considered the best and the wisest king, the fairest of all kings. He helped those in the realm that needed help. He gave generously when people were in need. One day it was discovered that someone had been stealing from him and the treasury of the king repeatedly. The king decided he had to do something about it. And so he went out and announced to the people, listen, I know that you all know me as a fair king and I really want to help and I want to do all that I can. But here's the problem. Someone has been stealing from the treasury. And I can't let that go unpunished. And so what I want to tell you is that I'm going to have to punish whoever it is discovered has been stealing from the treasury, and we're going to do it with ten lashes. A month went by and no one was caught. But the stealing continued. He walked out and said, listen, it's continuing. We're going to have to double the punishment. It'll be twenty lashes whenever we catch the culprit. Another month went by. Nothing was discovered. And so he went out and made his final declaration. We are going to double the punishment again, 40 lashes, which basically in their terms, in their place, was like a death sentence. A couple of days went by and the culprit was discovered. It was the king's mother. Now, you want to ask, uh, you want to find some interesting answer. Ask a six or seven year old what should happen to the mom. Well, he can't do anything to his mom. It's his mom. And he loves her. That's the compassionate child you have. Then you have the rule follower child. Well, he has to punish the mom because she did wrong. The king deliberated for two days. And decided he had to punish her. 
that a law was a law, a rule was a rule, justice was justice. And so he commanded his servants to prepare her and begin. And so they tied her to the pole where she would have her lashes given. The man that was the soldier that would be administering it prepared her for it, pulled back with the instrument that would deliver the lashes. And before he came down and struck, the king said, wait a minute. And he went over to his mom and he hugged her. Bear hugged her, put himself around her and then yelled, now begin. He said, I can't do that, king. He said, you have a command for me. Begin. And as the executioner tried to hit the mom, he could only hit the son. He took the punishment upon himself. Jesus wrapped his arms around us and took our punishment upon him. And he forgave us. He literally ingested our sin. There's a term for Jesus in the eastern hill country of Tennessee and Virginia and Appalachia that somewhere um, is from the ancient times but still kind of makes its way around. And that is he is our sin eater. That he ingests and eats our sin and forgives us in the midst of it. And what God did at the cross, what God did on that one cross that day is he suffered so we didn't have to. Which means you can explain the gospel in four words. Jesus in your place. He didn't just die for you. He died instead of you. He stood in your place and took the punishment for you. Now we turn to the other two crosses. One on either side of him bearing the two criminals because they demonstrate the division of the entire human race. And verse 39 says this. One of the criminals hanging there began to yell insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other answered, rebuking him, don't you even fear God? Since you are undergoing the same punishment, we are punished justly because we're getting back what we deserve for the things we did. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Two different responses to Jesus from two separate crosses on either side of him. And yet there are many things that these two men had in common. First of all, they were equally bad. It doesn't say one of them was really bad and the other one was uh, very bad. It doesn't say one was kind of bad and one was extremely bad. They were equally bad. None was worse than the other. In fact... Matthew tells us in Matthew 27, 44, that both of them start out by cursing Jesus. Not only were they equally bad, both of them would have been happy for Jesus to save them. In verse 39, even the one that ultimately rejects him says, if you really are the Messiah, save yourself and us. Who would love for Jesus to come down from the cross, lead a fight out against the Romans. 
But one thing, begin to understand some things that are necessary for truly being converted by Jesus. First of all, we see in this passage, he knew the difference in seeking help from God and seeking God for himself. In verse 40, the repentant thief doesn't ask to be taken down from the cross. I'm sure he would have been happy if Jesus would have offered it. But all that he is concerned about is being right with Jesus. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. The thief realizes that what he needs is not a change in circumstance, but a change in what life has been centered upon. Instead of asking God for the life he wants, he wants to make God his life. There's a difference between seeking God as the best means to the life you want. As to the, it's a difference between seeking God for your best life now and wanting to make God your life. There's a difference between God, what can I get if I follow you? And simply, God, I want to follow you regardless. There's a difference between loving God for himself and finding him as useful means to an end. To get what you really want. John Piper compares um, the way some people treat God to the way we use a tire iron. That's a hard word for a southerner to say. Tire, right? It all just kind of runs together, right? But you know what I'm talking about, right? That thing you use. What do you use a tire iron for? To change a tire, right? It's a useful instrument. Very helpful in a pinch. But nobody loves their tire iron. You know how I know you don't love it? You cover it up, Right? Unless you forget to cover it up or you just throw it in the back of your place. That if it's in my car, you, you have to go looking for my tire iron. You don't display it proudly. You hide it in the truck. You wouldn't want to be caught without it. Like when you need it, you need it. But it's not something you love. The tire iron is used for taking care of what you really care about your car. And that's how many of us use God. Useful for some end. We need him more. Peace in life, a stable family, going to heaven when we die, but not beautiful in and of himself. How do you view God? Is he just useful to you because he gets you what you want? Or is he beautiful to you no matter what comes in life? Same way there's a big difference between truly loving God and just trying to make him okay. We all know the story of a man who is not good to his wife, mistreats her, neglects her. She threatens to leave. He straightens up, goes to a counselor, and it works for a while, but then he's out of danger, at which point he goes back to his old ways because he's never dealt with his core problem that he doesn't give his wife the place in her heart, in his heart, that she deserves. In the same way, our repentance has to be a genuine change of heart toward God, not merely an attempt to make him happy. Some people wonder about things like deathbed conversions. Can someone live an evil life and never do anything good or think about God at all? And then the moments before they die, repent to God and go to heaven. And the answer to that is yes. The story shows that, but it has to be true repentance. It can't be God, give me my get out of hell free card without charge here at the last minute. I'm tomorrow, I've centered my whole life on what I want, what I want to do. But from this moment forward, God, just, just make it okay for me. 
True repentance is to say, God, if I've got five minutes or 50 years, I want to serve you and get you. Let me ask you a question today. It's a dangerous question to ask in a church full of people, mostly that have been in church for most of their lives. Have you truly repented in your life? Why do you seek Jesus? For a better marriage? Get you out of a jam to heal you, to prosper you, just to get to heaven? Or do you want Him for Him, even if it means you for the time being stay on the cross of a bad health or a bad marriage or a bad circumstance. Have you ever truly repented before God? Or did you just try to arrange a deal with him? When I was a child, I, uh, my brother was five and a half years older than me. And he moved out of the house to go to college when I was still you know, in middle school. And I remember he was out of the house, and so I had uh, I had a room kind of on the on the bottom floor by myself. I was going into those age range when uh, an ideal day for me was to close the door and be by myself all day, away from parents and everybody. And I decided one day I was going to play soccer in my room with a plastic ball we had bought at Walmart. You know those big you know the big containers. I don't know if they still have them. Walmart used to have these big containers. You'd walk in and be just plastic, you know, those squishy balls in them everywhere. I bought one of those and I was playing and I was having the game of my life. I was scoring goals on myself all over the place. And I kicked one hard and connected right through the window. My first thought was, I wonder if mom and dad heard that. The next thing I heard was, Lyle! My next thing was, God, I'll never ask you for anything else for the rest of my life if you'll let me get out of this alive, right? I was fearful for my life at that moment. Now, my parents didn't kill me, obviously. I did lose some privileges for a while, and I did have to live for the next two years with a generic Christmas album taping up the window I had broken to the outside world as a means of punishment for my embarrassment, which worked. I never kicked a ball through the uh, window again. You ever try to bargain with God? God, if you'll just get me out of this. God, if you'll just, God, if you'll take care of this, then. Your salvation can't be a bargaining your salvation is, thank you for what you've done. Forgive me for my sins. And whatever comes, comes. I want you. Not only did he understand that he needed to seek God and not what God could give him. Secondly, he understood he was guilty before God. He admits something in this passage that's almost impossible to admit without the help of Jesus, without the help of God. He says in verse 41, we are punished justly, getting what our deeds deserved. The other gospels, again, use for these two guys a word that means leste, which means like an insurrectionist, a guerrilla fighter, a freedom fighter, somebody that had caused havoc, someone that had caused problems. And a modern language, Rome would have considered them domestic terrorists. And there's no way he would say that he is fairly justice being put to death by Rome. He believed he was fighting for justice. So what's he talking about? 
He's not talking primarily about Rome's punishment of him on the cross. He is saying we deserve to be abandoned by God, to be punished for our sins. We deserve before him to die. Repentance recognizes first and foremost that sin is against God and God alone. King David committed one of the most egregious public sins in history. He committed adultery with Bathsheba, murdered one of his best friends, and right man at arms Uriah to cover it up and then lied about it for a year. And when God finally brought him to repentance in Psalm 51, David records against you and you alone have I sinned. Not Uriah, not Bathsheba, not the people of Israel. It's not that he doesn't recognize this or need to repay him. It's because God is so big in his mind that this is the most important one he has sinned against. How do you feel about your sin? It's first vertical before horizontal when it comes to repentance. There's a difference between feeling a remorse for the mess your sin has caused and feeling repentance to God about it. And then thirdly, he boldly dared upon Jesus' grace. When you think about it, what the thief asks is a crazy request, right? I know that you're the perfect Lord from heaven, but whenever you get to wherever it is you are going and whatever reward you come into, will you stop and remember a guy you knew for about 30 minutes who had done nothing worthy in his life and was being executed for murder and treason? The only thing crazier than the request is that Jesus grants it. Why would he do that? What did Jesus gain from granting this guy's request? The guy's never going to do anything useful for Jesus. He can't help the cause. He can't give his testimony to a single person. He'll never go on a mission trip. He can't contribute a single amount of money to any organization. Yet Jesus grants it. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but so that through him the world might be saved. And we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace. Why did Jesus forgive this man? Because he loved him. And it's what he came to do. We see in this passage a, an example of the parable that Jesus told of the father welcoming home a lost son. He's not evaluating what his son will be able to do for him or how much it costs to get him back. He is just so excited that the son has come home that he thinks about having only joy in his heart for him. To be honest, when I read this this week again, when I thought about this scene, when I think about the interaction of Jesus on the cross getting ready to die for our sins as the sins of our world, the entirety of sin is being pressed upon him in that moment and it is killing him there. The guy next to him says, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, would you remember me? And Jesus, with the weight of the sin of the world upon him, with people mocking him at his feet, an innocent God-man being crucified for our sins, stops in the middle of it to say, Today, you'll be with me in paradise. It almost feels like we need to take our shoes off and observe the holy moment that is happening here. His grace is being delivered for this man.
I quoted an old hymn on Wednesday night and it stuck with me for these four days. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord. Grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured, there where the blood of the Lamb was spilled. Grace, grace. God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace. God's grace. Grace that is greater than all our sin. You may not have anything else. You may have spoiled your life away. But you have the ability to reach out to Him to pray. And that is enough. Look again at His response in verse 43. Because there are important things we can learn there. First of all, it says, the key point of emphasis in Jesus' statement, today you will be with me in paradise. The key point of that whole statement is with me. Because the essence of salvation you see is being united with Jesus. Christian conversion is not a change of circumstance. Life doesn't immediately become smoother. It may never get smoother on this side of heaven. Or even primarily a change of behavior. You don't immediately become a perfect person. And this side of heaven, you will not be perfect. It is primarily a change of status, a change of position. You are now with Christ. Ephesians 2, 6 says, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him. The interesting thing about that in the original language, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, is that it is in the past tense. The past tense. Now, it's going to really tax your brain here for a minute. Where does the past tense assume it happened? In the past, right? And it says God raised us up at Christ and seated us with Him. That when we are saved, we are immediately seated with Him. He takes our sin. We get His position before the Father. So as Jesus says to the thief, as of right now, you're with me. From this point on, whether living or dying, you're identified with me. So today, when you die, you will have as much access to paradise as I do. That is an unbelievable statement. You and I, followers of Jesus Christ, if you're in this room and you have given your life to Jesus Christ, if you're in this room, you have accepted his salvation, he has changed your life, you have as much access as he does to paradise that he created. We placed our assurance of salvation in that. We no longer fear death because of that. And we can live life boldly in light of that. So at the cross... We see a microcosm of the whole story of the Bible. The whole story of humanity. Every one of us is one of these two criminals. And we will share in their destination. The two thieves look identical in life. But now as we speak, one of them is with Jesus. The other right now is not. A hundred years from now, nothing in your life will matter. Except what you did with Jesus. Like these two thieves, we're all guilty. Like all, we're all dying. We may not be hanging on a cross, but death is certain for us as it was for them. And like these thieves, we cannot possibly hope to earn God's salvation. We have nothing to repay God. The man had no life to offer God in payment, neither do you. 
You may have a few more days to live on this earth than the thief did on the cross. But what you have to offer God to pay for your sins is just as worthless as what he had to offer. And so the question is, have you chosen Jesus? There's a college professor, a religious institution, an African-American gentleman who spent his first few years of his adult life in prison for several armed robberies. He got out of jail and for three months he says that um, every night he considered whether or not to go back to his old lifestyle. Every night he thinks, should I knock off another convenience store? He got a job at a hotel making minimum wage. Late one night he was assigned to go and clean up a bathroom covered in the vomit of what looked like 15 people. Walls were covered, an inch of it on the floor. He was furious. And as he worked on his hands and knees, he told himself, the only reason they have me doing this is because I'm an ex-convict. Then he changed his mind and he said, no, it's because I'm African-American. I've never been given a fair shake. And I'll always be thought of a second class. He said that as he cleaned up that vomit, the Spirit of God came upon him and he began to realize that he had a choice. To keep making excuses and go back to his lifestyle or to repent of his sin and give himself to God. He said that somewhere in the middle of cleaning up vomit, his life forever changed. God broke him. He admitted it, yeah, that while he certainly faced discrimination, he deserved what he'd received in life. He knew God had better for him. He said, I was arrested by the Holy Spirit that night. My soul was set free. I was broken and then put back together. God released me from my captivity to sin and freed me to serve a new master. Jesus, who loves me. With the number of people we have in this room, we have people this week that have not yet made the decision to trust Jesus with their life. Maybe you're here and you've been playing the church game well for 70, 80 years, but you haven't given your life to Jesus. You haven't repented. This is a hospital for the broken, not a spa for the saved. Maybe you're not a recognized criminal, but under the same condemnation of death for your sin. And all of us in this room will die and we will face judgment. The question is, will you call out to Jesus and ask him to remember you in paradise? Repent and cling to him. Or will you choose the way of the other criminal who went to eternity without him? Let's pray together.